Good morning, everyone. Today you're in for a treat. I've got lovely Ashley Dean with us, head of school at New College Durham, and he's going to be talking to us about T levels and his experiences with the students, the staff, and industry out there, how they're coping with rolling out this initiative in getting people away from level threes and into the T level programs. morning everyone thank you for joining us on a lovely tuesday morning and on the breakfast show with sabrina today we've got an excellent guest um ashley dean who's joining us i'm going to be talking about t levels and is it right right now lots of debate about this in in the recent months and recent years um you know quite a new project that's still being piloted in most stages, um, some a bit more established courses delivering it. So be interested to see where it started, where it is now and where it's going. And our guest today is going to share their expertise on it. So would you just introduce yourself, please, Ashley? Yeah, morning, Sabrina. So my name is Ashley Dean. I'm a head of school and I work for New College Durham. Excellent. So um, first of all, Ashley, would you just tell us more about what is a T-level? Okay, <clears throat> it's a really good question. And um, so a T-level is <clears throat> a technical route and effectively it is um, supposed to align with A-levels. It's supposed to give the same outcomes as A-levels, but it's for people that want to potentially go on more of a vocational pathway. It's supposed to be aligned for students who want to get into sectors which are more technical. So engineering being a good example, and it aligns with sector skills gaps. And what it's supposed to do is also allow that student to obtain a work placement, which then evidences um, the work and, and the sort of um, knowledge, skills and behaviours they need for that sector, allows them to do a work project with that employer and ultimately allows them to progress into that sector rather than going through an A-level route, which might not necessarily give them the knowledge, skills and behaviours they need for that sector. So the T-levels, um, who are they aimed at and, and where can you do a T-level? You can do a T-level in any establishment that is signed up to do a T-level. So most FE colleges are now doing T-levels. They are in a number of different subjects um, and it's aimed at 16 to 19 year olds who have left school and in most cases come out with very high GCSEs, but don't necessarily want to do A-levels and want to progress onto more of a technical route. So what if you don't get the very high level GCSEs you know can what are your options you can't do an A level you can't quite do a T level where does that leave you if you're 16 to 19? It's a, it's a good question at the moment um, qualifications are going through reforms of course but at the moment we can do transitioning programs now we do run level ones level twos <coughs> to upstep the students so that we can progressively um, I suppose enable them to develop the knowledge, skills and behaviours and hopefully the English and maths to be able to get to a T-level. However, being completely honest, the entry criteria for the T-level is so difficult because of the criteria. 
it, we're talking about students needing fives and sixes really in English, maths and science. Now, when we look at the fact that 35% of students getting 16 do not have those grades, it means that for us to put them on a transition year to get to a T level, we need to make sure we get them to at least a four in English, maths and science, as well as developing the knowledge, skills and, uh, and, and behaviours in that subject. That's a really tall order. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers to T levels at the moment is the entry criteria. In FE and, and certainly in the areas of construction, um, you know, health, you're looking at students that don't come in with fours and fives. That's not the profile mm -hmm. of the student. The student comes in usually in a lot of cases quite disengaged with education. They come in with ones, twos. They come in with quite poor maths and English. And what's always been one of the strengths of those departments is the ability to gradually upstep them, gradually develop them and get them into an apprenticeship, get them into a job and, uh, in, in my opinion, mobilise them. With the T-level having such high entry criteria, it's, it's nigh on impossible to get them into that T-level with those starting points, which means that areas like construction, automotive, plumbing are going to really struggle to get T-level students. Um, so entry criteria is probably one of the biggest challenges to the T-level at the moment. I mean, is that because it has to keep or maintain that um, parity with the A-levels? We, we can't really move as much or be as flexible uh, with the entry criteria as, say, a level 3 B-Tech? Absolutely. Um, with, with a T-level, because the specifications are vast and they cover lots of topic areas but they're also very very deep in in, in the um, expectations of the students understanding so an example might be an automotive student comes into us now traditionally they come in as a 16 year old and they want to be an automotive technician all of the automotive qualifications solely align with automotive specifications and they're all about cars and they're quite practically based the T level, the first year, all of the core competencies lie within engineering. They align with mathematics, calculus, they align with physics. Now, your profile of a student wanting to do motor vehicle comes in normally with twos and threes in English and maths. Mm -hmm. Some come in with fours, but they are rare. So now we're trying to get them through core competency modules of, you know, calculus, of predictability, of mathematics, of physics. So A-level mathematics required to a student who hasn't really passed, say, their GCSEs. Exactly. Right. So what? where does that leave, say, the organisation in terms of fulfilling the requirements in getting students enrolled? And where does that leave, you know, local areas um, with their demographics that aren't able to access this provision? Uh, you well, you know, it's a really good question. It makes our jobs extremely difficult. What it means is we have to make sure our curriculum is, is coherent and we have to try and make sure we have signposted clear progression and pathways for every student that we might see at colleges. Oh, so when okay. we know that our demographic is going to be largely people without GCSEs in certain areas, we need to be looking at, OK, we're running qualifications to train them for apprenticeships, to get them into apprenticeships. So then we can evidence positive progression for them. If they come in with those grades as we've established and we don't have a clear plan for them and we say, yes, T-levels is the right option because they've been told that at school and that's not any disrespect to any school teachers. That's what schools are being told to sort of promote and push. But they don't meet the criteria. 
they then don't get to the criteria by the end of their sort of transitioning program they've got nowhere to go so from the start we need positive IAG to say to them this is probably not going to be the right pathway for you what that means is as a college we have to accept that we're not going to meet recruitment targets for t-levels right. we are going to struggle to be able to get students onto the t-level courses and if you look nationally that is the picture i think the aoc are quoting that you know the uptake of t-levels is 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 vastly under what they predicted it would be or the government certainly put out that it would be and i think that is the problem colleges right. don't want to put students on courses that are not right for that student or not right for that student's career progressions I mean, and, and I think that would be the right thing to do. Obviously, you know, you've got to look at the learner um, individually and think about, you know, what are they going to achieve by the time they finish their duration within the sector? And it'd be such a shame to see loads of students enrolled into a programme where they ultimately can't achieve. Um, the damage that could do is probably far worse than them not accessing that programme. Um, but when... When, when say colleges aren't able to hit that recruitment target, you know, what impact is that then having? Is that then going to change the direction of travel with the T-levels? Do you think the, you know, they'll be able to review and reform it again? I think they're going to probably need to. Um, I think, you know, I, I think in the intent, the T-level is fantastic. I think it's got many positive attributes, aligning it with employers, having work placements, the specifications to give a really broad and deep understanding of a sector is phenomenal. However, because of the, the, the entry criteria and the lack of recruitment, colleges aren't offering courses. They're not offering the T-levels because they're saying, I can't, I can't do it. Three students on a T-level isn't, isn't right for the student experience and it isn't right for the college. And I think as well with the T-levels, because the pathways align to um, like an overarching pathway. So an example, again, if we use automotive, because that was a good example before, that is underneath the engineering um, maintenance and repair pathway. So if I was to take on students recruitment basis, I might have, say I've got 12 people that want to do that pathway. They actually want to do the engineering concepts. They see themselves as going into university um, and doing engineering at university. And that might be in multiple different disciplines. If we take those 12 learners and say, OK, you're going to do your core competencies, you'll be in one group. That one group is financially viable for the college and it's viable for the student experience. But the problem is in their second year, they choose their occupational specialty. Now, three of them choose motor vehicle. Mm. What do we do with those three students? Do we run a one year T-level in an occupational specialty for those three students um, or have we blocked them off? Can we, can, can we do anything with them? Now, as a college that I work for, we would offer them that, that, that journey. But a lot of colleges aren't. A lot of colleges are saying there's, that there's no way we can do that. The amount of hours we need to give these students to get them through the T-level, to have three students in the classroom is just not viable. I can't so, imagine it'd be very good in terms of engagement. And, you well, know, exactly. one student be off sick and that's it. You've lost a third of your cohort. Um, in terms of... of oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, and if you look at retention across the two year programmes, they're always quite poor. And I think T-levels at the moment are nationally 66%. So it shows that people are dropping off in programmes. So not only are we lacking recruitment initially, we're also losing them through that two year programme. And what are we losing them to when you're talking about losing, say, you know, a third there? A third of the students. I think, I think a lot of them uh, are falling off the programme because it's not what they expected. Mm. Um, I, I think the feedback we've seen from students certainly has been it's 
more, far more intense and their yeah. guided learning hours don't reflect how many hours they actually need to put in in terms of independent study researching on the job all of the other things i think um cumulatively it's a lot more than indicated by the specification um not including the the amount of effort and energy takes a, a toll i think on a generation that post covid are not as adapt to you know that resilience and the you know emotional processing of all of the variety and deeper understanding and knowledges is that something you've seen in in your areas 100% i think you're totally right i think the the expectations of a t level on a 16 year old <clears throat> coming out of school as you've said <laughs> post covid in a cost of living crisis um, where they are being motivated in many ways by their parents who are saying to them, get something that's going to be able to give you a job that's going to get you money as quick as possible in a lot of cases. And then they, had, they don't have the resilience. They have been, you know, unfortunately um, hindered by what's happened to them in the previous years. They don't have the softer skills they need to understand what they're doing now will benefit them in the future. And I think that's causing a problem for them. I think they're, they're getting sort of halfway in and thinking, this is far too much to commit for, for something that I don't see a, a tangible sort of outcome. I don't think they understand what the T-level can do for them in the future. Um, and there's a lot we can do with that. I think as colleges, we're trying very, very hard to make sure the message is getting out there. I believe schools are doing very um, good things in regarding to, to, to IAG around T-levels, but I still think there's a mismatch in what schools and what probably we think the T-level is gonna be able to do for the student and what the student expectations are of that T-level. And so they're getting sort of halfway through their first year or, or certainly getting even to the end of their first year and saying, this is too much. And I think in areas where you can obtain, you know, jobs, low-skilled labour has always been a threat to education. Yeah. But when you're getting sort of one year into a programme that you're having second thoughts on, you're getting offered some sort of work where you're going to get some cash quite quickly, you're able to mm -hmm. provide that for your family, that seems like the better option. And we lose a lot of students in it to low skilled labour, you know, your Amazons, people like that, who are offering sort of quite a lot of money for, for a 17, 18 year old mm -hmm. to come and work on a production line. It's attractive to them. So in terms of the, you know, you were talking about the IAG and then the, the tangible outcomes. Will that improve as they start seeing the impact of a, a T-level student? So when they see the success rates of T-levels going into universities, going into high paid jobs, because at the moment it's in its infancy, we don't really know, you know, what the T-level will bring to these learners that have access it. Do you think with more time and more recognition that will improve? Or do you think the low skill sectors will still be taking the students? No, I I think I think, you know, low skill sectors is always going to be a threat, but I, I believe you're right. I believe the more data that comes out, the more employers recognise T-levels as a, a, a qualification, because let's be honest, a lot of employers don't know what T-levels are at the moment. And if a student comes to them and says, I've got um, a BTEC level three in, um, you know, whatever that might be, an employer, an employer knows that, it knows the currency of that. Whereas a T-level, I think a lot of employers are struggling to understand that. So the more that employers become au fait with it, the more sort of reputation precedes it, the more the data comes out, it will support that. And then we'll be able to evidence a lot more progression into that. Now, I'm really proud of the college I work for, and I know that the T-levels have been really positive in the college. So there's a lot of areas where we've evidenced 100% progression from the T-level into the sector. And for me, that's what a T-level should be about. 
So more things that like that that are happening create the marketing, um, you know, um, content, which mm. allow p- potential students to say, hey, guess what? If I go and do that healthcare um, T level, 100% of the students got placements, and then they actually ended up in the sector at the end of it. So seeing something like that will be incredibly powerful. But I do think you're right because of the infancy of the T levels, we are struggling to use that information in in a meaningful way for students to be able to engage with it. Um, you mentioned there as well um, earlier on about having three students in a classroom to deliver, you know, something more specialist. Yes. Um, the example you used was in the automotive industry. But when we're thinking about other areas where we know there's massive shortages in just staffing. Um, yeah. So, for example, healthcare, you know, trying to get someone who's got that real high level of medical knowledge, medical medical expertise to pass down to a T-level student to come out of industry sector where we know there's shortages and the pay is quite, quite high, then to come into a college to, to teach potentially a group of three or four students you know what what impact is that having on both sectors for example them leaving the medical sector or health and care sector and then coming into teaching and education to teach a small cohort um i can't imagine recruitment being easy and i can't imagine retention of the staff members being easy so how are how's our colleges or you know networks that you've been dealing with coping with that it, it, they're not in a lot of ways. Um, it's a really good question. I think st- staffing is the other element of T levels, which is a real challenge because staffing in general across FE um, or post 16 education it, it is going through a real sort of um, difficult time at the moment. And for a number of reasons, as you've mentioned, industry are paying a lot more. Um, and I'll be honest, education's not as attractive as it used to be for people. Um, I think the idea of a pension and holidays was really attractive, but now it's a lot more admin than it ever used to be. The holidays get crunched a lot more by marking, assessment, mm. planning, preparation, meetings, all of the sort of systems and processes that change yearly that we have to get au fait with. And so people in industry are saying, actually, we don't want to go over there. And then, yeah, the second thing is if they do come over to education, we're now creating skills gaps or sort of certainly job role gaps within those sectors they're coming from. And it's very hard to plug that back. Um, So one of the things that has been really powerful for me and something that I've looked at is I've gone through sort of our alumni and I've gone through graduates and I've gone through people who have completed apprenticeships who may not now be with those employers. And I've said, look, you know, you're out of the sector, you've come out of the sector, although you're competent within it, you've passed your qualifications or you've graduated and you've worked in the sector for three to four years. Would you like to come back into education? Would you like to help to develop the skill sets of future? Um, people in that sector and that's been really powerful because yes they probably need a little bit more guidance a little bit more support they probably need a lot more onboarding but actually mm. we can work with that we can grow our own we can develop those teachers the T levels brings a big problem because those teachers wouldn't be able to deliver on the T level no you know those teachers are not going to have the competence and experience to be able to deliver the specifications that are the T levels so yeah absolutely that is fraught with challenge and what it means is as a head of school you've got to carefully map your staff you've got to carefully consider the skill sets of your teams and you've got to make sure that you're aligning their skill sets with the qualifications but being completely honest not many staff who have been in education for the last 10 years have the skill sets for the modern T levels because they've not been kept up to date as well as they should have been and I think that's just true across all education 
well yeah I mean you, I know the argument is that you're dual professional but you know you tend to become more of a teacher lecturer than you do an industry expert after as the years go on so what happens in terms of bringing say a GP you know with with that medical background come in and teach say on a health and care course and and specialist pathways after five years when they've been in the industry and in, in um, in the education and training sector, how do we ensure the longevity of those staff with the industry knowledge at that time to retain that? It's it's a good question. I mean, retention of staff is is a massive um, concern across across education and keeping them away, from, you know, sort of keeping them updated with industry, but keeping them sort of in education is a real challenge. And I think we, what we need to think about is the bigger picture, the mission and the value of education, because most people that get into education get into it because they really want to support people they want to develop people and they want to get people into the sector so i think if we can make sure that when these people are coming from industry they're supported from the start they're given robust onboarding processes and procedures they're given lighter teacher loads they're not expected to be absolutely on 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 teacher contractual hours from the beginning they are supported by management to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it but then more importantly they see the achievements through their students and they see the outcomes that will keep people in education i believe or, or certainly keep some people in education because in your example that person isn't going to come into education um and and give up their job role um very easily it's going to be something where it's a decision where they're winding down they perhaps they've given to to, 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 the, to the sector for multiple years and now they want to give back to education so their expectations of what they're going to do in education need to be met if they're not and if they come into education and feel like all they're doing is spreadsheets and admin all they're doing is reporting on data figures and facts they lose sight of why they're there they lose sight of their vision and their motive and they lose sight of why we as educators do the job and in my opinion, that's why a lot of people are leaving and have left is because they've lost sight of why they're there. And and is that something that you think time will remedy as we kind of refine the process? Or do you think there needs to be an action from a group, whether it's senior leaders within the FE sector or within the T-level reforms? Like who's going to see that this is sustainable long term? Well, I think I think the work that you know Gillian Keegan is doing as education minister is 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 trying to support that. I think she has plans to look at workloads. She has plans to look at why are teachers not um, not teaching? Why are they doing so many activities above or below or around that teacher post? Um, and I think that will help. I think it needs to be driven from legislation. It needs to be driven from the government. I think it needs to be driven from the way we fund colleges, the way we fund FE. I think it needs to be driven from, you know, policy so that we can make sure that we are looking after the people that are in education. Um, there's been too many years where post-16 education's kind of been forgotten about um, and a lot of things have been updated and changed, but they've not really then been looked at within post-16 education or a lot of reforms have happened which haven't necessarily supported the job roles within um, post-16 education so I think it's going the right way but that's, that's kind of where for me it needs to it needs to start and needs to sort of continue to be pushed. Um, so if we if we kind of look at kind of the the, the problems that have currently been identified within the T-levels you know um, what what are your key say three things that we need to remedy? 
I think we need to remedy the alignment of the T levels with the job outcomes we expect. So we need to make sure there are clear maps between the T level and what job I can come out with. When you look at a T level and it says four or five different jobs, all fairly different that you could do. I don't necessarily buy into that and I don't think the students do. The students need to know if I do this T level, what will I come out with? Um, and we need to make sure that the pathways do definitely align with the job roles we're expecting. And at the moment, some of them do, some of them don't. That needs definitely looking at. I think we need to look at the English and maths entry points. I think we need to look at what we're going to do to get these students to the right level for the T level. Um, and that's a, that's a huge task. I don't know, you know, if that even just sits within post 16, that probably sits within secondary schools. Um, you know, it probably sits within looking at why are students coming out of school after 11 years without fours in English, maths and science? Um, so that that entry point it, it needs looking at. And I think if we're going to reform all the qualifications below the T level, we need to make sure we reform them in a positive way, which allows the gradual upstep of students to meet that T level entry point. We need to make sure we have a understanding and we're cognizant of the fact that most students in FE do not have the English and maths and science that we probably require. And there needs to be a robust scheduling, scheduling or mapping of curriculum to allow those students to upstep and then meet the point that we expect. So, I mean, with, with those students that are doing that in, what do you call it, the foundation year to get into a T-levels, so yeah. they could potentially do that full year um, and still not achieve the English and maths grades and then not get onto a T-level. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at, I'm part of a few forums and we're looking at sort of different options for students who don't meet the entry level um, for T levels and what we do about that. Now, the problem is you just shift the problem. When you look at high level achievement across FE, it's not 80, 90 percent. It's more like 20, 30 percent in most colleges. <clears throat> so that means that most 16 year olds who don't have the English and maths required, they study another year of English and maths and they still don't have the English and maths required. So if we put in a transitioning year to get to the T level, but we don't make sure we're careful in how we upskill their English and maths, we just end up shifting the problem by a year. We end up saying, OK, 25% of you can go on to a T level because you've passed your English and maths to a grade four. Unfortunately, the rest of you can't. Now, the argument against that is that Technically, if they've done a transitioning year, they've developed the knowledge, skills and behaviours within that sector. So it might be plumbing, for instance, and they've developed the practical skills to be able to get on the T level and not be too disadvantaged by the fact they don't have the English and maths, which I agree with. However, as said before, the specifications are still so heavily um, laid on with maths and English English specifications. I mean, you're talking, like I said before, about calculus and things like that. So the specs need to be aligned with that. If we're going to have people that go from a transition year and we're going to accept that they've got the knowledge, skills and behaviours to be a plumber and meet the plumbing aspects of the T-level, we need to have something in place where we either have support for them or mitigations for them so they don't have to then also evidence all the maths and English. Otherwise, colleges won't have them go on to T-levels. Um, and that, that's where you're going to end up with students coming out of education with nothing. They've done a transition year and they've got no outcome. 
or you're going to have students who do the T level and don't achieve and both are, are pretty bad outcomes. Is there is there anything that comes out of that transition year other than transitioning? So, you know, hopefully you get the English and maths, but do you get any um, accreditations or qualifications at a lower level from that transition year? Yeah, I mean, they, they ran T-level specific transition years, which we didn't opt into too much. And we did a couple of different sectors, but not not all of them. But I think at the moment, while we've got accredited qualifications that are there, I mean, I, I use plumbing as an example, so I'll stick with plumbing. Um, the level two tech cert, a student can come on the level two tech cert. They can then have an accredited qualification at the end of that year. So therefore, they can get onto an apprenticeship. That's a route for them. They've got a qualification bag. That's also good for them in the sense where they're future proofed. They've got that. They can go on to a level three at any point if they would like to. Um, which I know obviously level threes won't be available anymore. The level three T level, when they go onto that, they've, they've got that route as well. But the point of the matter is they've bagged that qualification, that accredited qual, and they've got the softer skills. And I think that's where we can really make some impact is in that transition year. Yes, give it an accredited, accredited qualification so they come out with it, but also build their softer skills, personally develop them to the point where they're employable so that apprenticeships is also another good route for them. Um, but you are going to get some students naturally who will not meet the specs for the T level. They are going to come out of a transition year and they will not be able to get to the level three standard the same way you do now. Um, that is always going to be something that happens. And as I said before, colleges have to think really carefully what happens with those students. Where do they go? What do they do? And like I say, it's a curriculum mapping exercise to try and have an outcome for every single student. So, I mean, you've mentioned apprenticeships. Um as as an alternative pathway to the T levels. Now, how do they, I know there's an academic level to the T level and what are the main other differences between the T level and an apprenticeship route for those people wanting to do the level threes? So for me, the apprenticeship, the three? Yeah, so for me, the apprenticeship route is probably the preferred route in some areas. Um, I think, you know, if we look at an apprenticeship and we look at the fact that you're with an employer four days a week, you're getting hands-on experience four days a week. You're in an area where traditionally it isn't needed to have high levels English and maths, but it is to have high levels of competence towards a skill. It might be sawing wood, it might be, you know, laying bricks. So for me, those apprenticeships really suit a demographic of learner that doesn't necessarily fit with a T level. So it offers a pathway that's probably better for that style of learner. Um, and in my opinion, apprenticeships in many areas is the gold standard because mm -hmm. once they've gained competence once they've passed their epa they go into that sector as a competent member of that sector and in most cases through apprenticeships if they get to the end and i know retention is a huge factor with apprenticeships as well but if they get to the end and they get through their epa you know over 90 percent of cases they're going into that sector as a competent member of that that, that sector and they're sort of um they're meeting that skills need with a T level, um, and I know I said you know earlier that there's there's some really good stories of people getting into the sector. There's also a lot of people that aren't, mm -hmm. and they're not going into HE. Um, they're not seeing themselves as wanting to do a degree in engineering, and they're not getting an engineering job at the end of it. So and why is that? Because why do, why do you think that is? I think you know, and this is obviously only my personal point of view. Um, I think the sectors. Are unwilling to accept people aren't going to come in at a starting point and be fully competent. I think people um, 
expect in, in in some sectors i'm not saying all but some employers we speak to they expect someone to do a t-level and come out as a finished product come out and be productive come out and start assimilating into a business or an organization and be able to be autonomous and that is an expectation that is so far beyond reality mm. and what we're saying to employers is we're trying to get some healthy discussion around if you've got a t-level student who graduates from a t-level they've spent 45 days on a placement they are not competent i wouldn't put them on a motor vehicle ramp servicing and repairing vehicles on their own i would certainly do some onboarding i would certainly do some training with them yeah. i would do a skills analysis a training needs analysis and say this is what they need and this is why they need it and this is when i expect them to be competent by it might be a year it might be two mm -hmm. but that's not happening so the students don't get off the jobs because in the employer's eyes they don't meet their entry criteria of what they deem as a competent um employee and i think that's just unfair and so much work needs to be done between employers and colleges mm -hmm. to repair that do you think that the apprenticeships or apprentices when they finish are more in line with employer expectations? A hundred percent. Because, you know, that employer has spent two, three years with that apprentice. They're aligned with the goals and the values of that of that business. They understand the typical day of work that that business might have. And they obviously have that grounding and that backing with that employer and that employer is invested in them. So they've got mm -hmm. almost like a um, responsibility. I say responsibility is a strong word, but they've almost got an invested interest. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the the T levels and the apprentices, you said that there were differences in the amount of hours there are on the job or in placement. Um, how easy is it to find placements um, when you're competing against apprentices? So if, if I was an employer and had a choice between offering four days a week to a student or offering 45 days in a year to a student, why would I offer it to a T level student? I think I think, you know, it's a good question. And I think it depends on what that employer wants, because not every employer wants an apprentice. Some employers don't have the capabilities to have an apprentice. They can't meet the requirements. They might not necessarily be able to meet all of the specifications within the standard. So actually having someone where they can still support the sector mm -hmm. and the growth of the sector, having someone as a work placement seems like a logical step. And we work with a lot of employers who say, actually they feel like they're giving back to their sector by allowing work experience students to come in so that kind of takes precedence over the over the apprenticeship but in my opinion it's just down to personal choice and employer capabilities um, i don't think there's a necessary benefit or or um, challenge with either i think it's just dependent on what that employer wants um, apprenticeships obviously offer the, the the benefit of the fact that they are training their own, um, but then obviously they're paying that that apprentice, um, and they're going through that apprenticeship, and it's a it's a big program, two year program, whereas the work placement sort of less responsibility in a sense, forty five days um, placement is a lot easier to to sort of evidence and productivity wise, you're not taking so much out of your business. I think when you when you're investing in a, an apprentice, you are really doing it for the long haul. Yeah. Um. In in terms of the like the T level incentives that you offer um, industries through the industry placement fund, um, there was obviously a massive clawback on that last year, um, where six point seven five billion was was clawed back by the DfE. Now, yeah. if 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 there's support there for employers, and if there's opportunities for employers to be helping out in um, the T level sector, 
why is that money going back to the DfE? What's what's going on there? Um, because I, when I speak to colleges and I speak to students, you know, one of the difficulties they have is securing employers. One of you know, especially yeah. ones that are specific to the the pathways. Um, but um, there seems to be a lot of money there that's being handed out but not being used. It's, it's yeah, it's a really good question, and and I think you know. In the ideal world, that is the ideal plan. You would fund employers to to, to sort of participate and to collaborate with colleges to allow meaningful <laughs> placements to happen. But the truth of the matter is, you might have something in the region of six to eight colleges within a 60 mile radius, all competing with four or five big organisations in a certain sector to get work placements. And each college has 15 to 20 T-level students. That's a hell of a lot of placements and a hell of a lot of responsibility you're putting on employers who are already quite saturated from the number of employer voice activity events they have with colleges, the boards they sit on, you know, and there is obviously a lot of social accountability and there's a lot of the social accountability in contracts now that's written in for certain sectors, which is encouraging employers to engage. But the truth of the matter is work placements have always been tremendously difficult to get. Um, and I think the problem of it is, is there's just not enough um i think there's not enough understanding about what the employer has to do through that work placement but i think also it's too much of a productivity loss i think when you think about an employer who's sitting there saying right i've got a production line or i've got a workshop or i've got a, a site or i've got somewhere um you know remote or somewhere i'm working and i'm going to bring someone in for work placement they're going to need an induction they're going to need all of the health and safety requirements they're going to need a lot of training and a lot of mentorship now, in the best cases, employers see that as positive and say, yes, we're having an impact on the sector and we're growing our own and we're helping the pipeline. Mm -hmm. But most people, especially SMEs, just don't have the, the facilities or the capabilities or the time to be able to invest that into those students. And that's another big barrier for T-levels for me is if we all start running T-levels, every college, everywhere, I don't think we've got the employer engagement to be able to facilitate the amount of work placements needed. So we can't do this without the employers and their backing and and obviously their support uh, at the, at their cost in in essence. Um, and although the government's providing you know up to a thousand pound cash boost per student, um, is that enough to cover some of the cost of the productivity for that organisation, or is it just you know too little or unrealistic? Yeah. I think it's unrealistic. I, I, I genuinely think if you were to speak to a business and say, how much money in productivity do you spend on average on a work placement, even a 10 day work placement? I think it exceeds £1,000. Um, don't get me wrong. I do think the awareness of that incentive hasn't necessarily been there as well. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of employers haven't been aware that they can have that incentive. And that's obviously not great for, for the fact that we're trying to get them engaging and if they were aware they might engage but yeah a thousand pound for me doesn't do it for the employer um, there needs to be something and, and maybe it's not even money um, I don't know what you know whether it's training or whether it's something where they can get something in regards to contracts and I spoke about it earlier you know social accountability and when they're when they're sort of going for pretenders and things like that there's something in there where they can say we're working with a college we've taken on x amount of placements and that gives them almost um extra points on their mm -hmm. bids 
extra points so they can get funding they can get um you know contracts with other businesses if they're subcontractors they can win contracts based on their engagement with employers and um, with it with colleges i think that sort of thing would really help them out and i think the more we do that the more they will engage and i think we need to understand that well i mean for, for, for me particularly 96 percent of the employers i work with are smes so what are we doing with smes can we backfill? I know that's probably very difficult, but can we do some kind of sharing of responsibility? Can we do something where we can help that SME to take on a work placement? Um, and as well, the other the other big barrier as well is, is the health and safety aspect of it, because right. every single employer has to get vetted. They have right. to go through quite stringent um, health and safety protocol to be able to be accepting of a work placement um, candidate. And when you put that on, a, on, on an employer, um, a lot of them are sort of saying, well, no, I won't bother them. I'm trying to help you out and you want to come <laughs> out and you want to, you know, you want to audit me. You want to go through all my files. No one wants that even, exactly. you know, no one wants that really. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if we have to do it for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I don't think the money's enough. I don't think the, I don't think there's an, enough of incentive for an employer, but I don't think it's just about money. Um, as I say, I think that we can do more for employers to to help them. Um, and I think we need more support for SMEs. Well, whose responsibility is that then? Is that something that the colleges really need to do? Or is that something that needs to come from the local authorities? Or, you know, going bigger and really pulling it down from government policies and processes? I, th I think it's all. I think it's everyone. Mm. We all we all need to do better. Um, we all need to do more to help our, our employers and our businesses. Um, I think, you know, I'm extremely lucky where I'm part of a college who, in my opinion, probably do everything they can to try to support employers. Um, they put boards together, they listen to them, they, they actually put into practice what the employers are saying, but then obviously they help employers with, with other activities. But I think we could probably do more in terms of awareness. We could have more awareness events. We could have put the message out about the incentive a bit better. Um, I think locally, yes, there should be more done. I think there should be more around, like I say, supporting these SMEs and like making the SMEs understand the impact if if they do collaborate with colleges, what impact that could have on them. Um, and yeah, from a from a government level, I think there needs to be something so that holistically across the country, every employer is aware of what they can access and what help they can have if they do take on a work placement and there should be some incentive around that um, which is which is obviously led from the top well fingers crossed obviously everything keeps on gaining momentum and improving after we review and review again um i know that obviously there's a lot of debate recently about the impact of the advanced british standard and 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 how yeah. that will impact the t levels so We've talked a little bit about, you know, how it started and where it currently is. What will happen, do you think, in days to come if the Advanced British Standard is implemented and rolled out? Uh, I think it, it's uncertainty, isn't it? And that uncertainty creates um, a reluctance to participate. And that's what we see across everywhere when the government make a big decision they're going to reform something they're going to go ahead with something they're going to change legislation to make something happen and then for whatever reason they take a step back or they say it's not forever we might change it in 10 years i think they're talking about 10 years um to bring out this you know advanced british standard what that means is that uncertainty 
spreads everywhere. It spreads across to all students, parents and, and, and colleges. Now, we're going to have to run the T-levels. We've got no choice. Level three reform, you know, level three qualifications are going, the BTECs are, are, are gone. We need to run them. But that uncertainty across the colleges means that being honest, they're probably not going to give them the best possible shot they can. They're probably not going to invest in them in the way they can. Parents aren't going to believe in them the way they should to be able to inspire their sons, daughters, um, other to, to go into education. And students aren't going to really see the relevance of it because a lot of students are going to say, well, hold on, they're going to be changed again in, in 10 years. And is this really what I want? Because what happens when they change? Does the T-level lose its currency? Does the T-level lose its impact? Um, and we know it won't. But that uncertainty, it starts rumours, it starts myths, it starts a lot of misinformation and miscommunication, which is damaging. Um, and it will be damaging to the T-levels, in my opinion. Um, and, and what if the advanced British standard doesn't go ahead? What do you kind of foresee will happen or, you know, develop for the T-levels? I think that the T-levels are going to go through a number of, of, of reforms and a number of different um, alterations and adaptions. And they should. They should always be adapting. Um, mm -hmm. I think education should always be adapting. The, the type of students we deal with change um, almost every year. The way that education landscape is changes every year and employer expectations change every year. And I think what hopefully will happen is everything below a T-level that's being reformed and considered gets considered in the right way so that every student no matter what they come in with at college, no matter what their background is, no matter what deprivation they've been through, where they live, um, they are able to access the highest level education that they are able to achieve. And for me, that's where I hope it goes. Um, and that's maybe me being a little bit idealistic. Um, but I think that's what's starting to happen. And what I believe is that there are so many forums now and there's so many employers and colleges and educators that are feeding back I think that's got to happen. I think there's there's got to be some positive movement now. We've had we've got the T level. We know it's not necessarily fit for purpose, although its intention is great. Let's work with the people that are delivering it. Let's you know change it in a way that actually has positive impact for everyone involved. So you're still hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think, <laughs> and and I've and I've said this before. I think the T level in its intent is is a fantastic idea. I think for too many years we've had level threes that have no tangible evidence to demonstrate positive progression. Mm -hmm. They have no real impact or, or measurements of impact. They're often put on in a lot of subject areas as a, a holding um, area because people have got to the end of level two. They haven't got an apprenticeship. They haven't managed to get into the sector for whatever reason. Right, let's go back and do level three. And then at the mm -hmm. end of level three, we've just pushed the problem another year. I'm not saying that's true for everywhere, but I am saying that that is certainly how I feel about level current level three qualifications. So they needed to change. Um, there needs to be more employer engagement. There needs to be more um, work placement and more emphasis on that. The hours need to be bigger and um, we need to spend more time with our students developing them. You know, four days a week is a good model. However, there's just some challenges and some things that we could just sort of change to make them a little bit more fit for purpose. Do you ever worry that um, moving forward, if we continue in the current trajectory, only certain colleges in certain areas are truly going to excel at these, you know, level three and higher, higher skilled workforce? So, if, for example, if we're looking at um, digital courses 
and doing a digital T level, the kind of expertise and the placement and everything wouldn't be available to rural areas. And as a result, the, res um, the outcomes for digital T levels was poorer um, yeah. than most of the other providers. Um, so what does that mean then really people in London or in cities where they've got access to industries um, and a more variety of placements will benefit whereas you know uh, in the towns and in the in the smaller areas they won't really have that specialist knowledge and then the placements to gain with that Absolutely. is that not just is that not conflating the problem where certain pockets will will get the advantages when others are disadvantaged yeah, and I think, you know, we talk about levelling up agenda. I mean, it goes against that um, that very premise because of the fact that you're right. There are going to be areas of the country which are going to be disadvantaged because of the types of businesses they work with. I mean, obviously, I work within the northeast and there are a lot of businesses that deal with unskilled labour in the northeast and mm -hmm. low skilled labour. There's also a lot of businesses that are incredibly groundbreaking and innovative. Um, but if you compare that to somewhere like London or the southeast, there's not as many of those businesses and that's where we talk about this work placement having quite a, a a challenge to it because you're saturating the businesses you do have but there are sort of six seven colleges in the northeast who are trying mm. to saturate the same so some, some you know really large colleges and some um you know that are not only that you're competing against the apprentices you're competing against you know other other people that are going in straight into those industries from school and getting low skilled jobs and working their way through and then you've got the your T level students trying to get forty five days. Yeah. I I, th I think it's it's quite difficult when you've only got maybe one or two large organisations that can offer that um, provision and pass all the health and safety and be willing to you know deal with the colleges on a routine basis um, and invest that time. So I, I'm I'm just worried when we think about even smaller areas, say that, you know smaller than the northeast, where there's not a lot of um, variety in scope and in, in terms of offering all of these pathways that the T levels offer. Um, yeah. How how do these students say you know you're a you want to be a digital software engineer and you live in say Cumbria, you know yeah. where 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 are you going to access a course like that? Are we then saying do you know what we we don't have an industry we don't have this kind of provision you know move to Manchester or something where where it could be done is 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 that yeah. cutting students off? I really fear for some of these kids in terms of aspirations and goals. We're kind of saying and limiting putting in that glass ceiling again for for yeah. students that want to aspire for something different. I think you're totally right. I think as well, when we spoke about the biggest challenge to T-levels being the entry criteria and you look nationally at the percentage of students who are passing English and maths from school, it's disproportionate again. Mm. Um, so actually, actually, someone in Cumbria is a good example, has probably got less chance, even less chance of getting a T-level yeah. because not only do they have the employer endorsement challenges, the work placement challenges, they've got the challenges of being significantly lower in their achievement of English and maths at school compared to London. So again, your people in London, uh, you know, your students in London are getting their GCSEs, they've got the employer back in, they've got huge chances of succeeding. Your student in Cumbria absolutely has not. Um, it's stacked against them before they've even started. And I think you're completely right. There needs to be a lot of work done around what we do with that. And I don't know, I, I've got no idea what, how to answer <laughs> that and what that would what that would look like, but it needs to be done. Oh, well, definitely food for thought for any of you guys listening out there that want to want to feedback and, and and come back to us with some ideas how do we approach these or if you live in one of those areas 
um, listeners and, you, and you're worried about your students and what you can offer them, please let us know. You can you can message me on Twitter um, or on LinkedIn. And I, I presume that's the same with you, Ashley. You know, if yeah. the listeners want to find out more, um, you can reach out to Ashley on the socials. But we are going to wrap it up because we are almost out of time, although it's been excellent speaking to you. Really, really highly informative discussion there, Ashley. Thank you so much. Um, would you like to just quickly um, go through then a summary of what you've discussed today and um, and then we're going to give it a close? No problem at all. Thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so I've discussed T-levels. I've discussed the challenges that are currently there with T-levels. I've discussed the different sectors that you can do a T-level within and I've discussed the challenges of each sector um, and how that that can sometimes be difficult for students to obtain placements and how that can be difficult to evidence progression into those sectors. We've also spoke about the alternatives to T-levels and the future of T-levels. And it's been a brilliant hour today. So I hope everyone will join me next time. Until then, um, it's a bye from me and a bye from Ashley. Bye. Bye. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make edtech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The inquest into the death of head teacher Ruth Perry has ruled that an Ofsted inspection contributed because it lacked fairness, respect and sensitivity and was, at times, rude and intimidating. These are the comments from the senior coroner Heidi Connor, as reported on the BBC News website. Mrs Connor went on to express concern about the impact the inspection system can have on school leaders. This is the first time Ofsted has been listed as a contributing factor in the death of a head teacher. The coroner also issued a prevention of future death notice, a report that aims to stop similar situations arising again. Anyone who gets such a notice has 56 days to say what they plan to do to mitigate the chances of deaths happening. Education unions, Ofsted Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman and Education Secretary Gillian Keegan have all released statements following the inquest. These can be found across media outlets. A statement by Mrs Perry's sister, Professor Julia Waters, 
made it clear that this situation must never be allowed to happen again. But that Ruth was a much more than a victim. She was a sister, a wife and a mother. The Programme for International Student Assessment, or PISA, has released its latest findings. Making the headlines amongst the data was a figure of 11% of teens in the UK who were skipping or missing a meal at least once a week as a result of poverty. The average was 8%, although it rose to 13% in the USA and to 19% in Turkey. The report makes the link between missing meals and less effective learning. Every four years, PISA compares 15-year-olds reading, science and maths levels across 81 countries. The director of the project described the UK as being in a fairly good spot, with improvements in reading and maths, although there was a decline in science. Amongst the four home nations, England performed the highest across all three subjects, although the average maths score fell for all UK nations. The gap in results between UK nations has widened, with Wales recording its worst results so far, according to the BBC. The Welsh Education Minister said COVID-19 had derailed improvement. Northern Ireland scored higher than Scotland in maths and science, but Scotland did better in reading. The Wellbeing Survey is the first of its kind, with the Head of Research expressing surprise that so many pupils in a supposedly wealthy country are missing meals due to food poverty. Another survey, this time by the British Council, has also seen its results released. They asked just over 2,000 pupils at the end of their first year of secondary from across the UK about modern foreign languages. The results showed that only 20% planned to study a language at GCSE. The numbers of pupils taking modern foreign languages has been in decline in recent years. Whilst 73% of those taking part in the survey said children should have the chance to learn the language, and 46% said they enjoyed language learning, more than one in four said that they did not plan to take the subject at GCSE level or beyond. Nearly nine out of ten said they did not think it was very likely that language would be necessary for their future career. Finally, writer and poet Benjamin Zephaniah passed away on the 7th of December at the age of 65. He had been diagnosed with a brain tumour eight weeks ago. Zephaniah had 14 poetry collections and five novels published over the years. He openly discussed his difficulties with learning to read and write, leaving school at 13 and his diagnosis of dyslexia. His first book was published in 1980 and he described himself as an angry young man who had an outlet through writing. He said that using writing as expression had saved his life. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.